This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. On this week's Paddock Pass podcast, we'll look forward to the Austrian Grand Prix at the Red Bull Ring, and we'll also have a chat with David about riding across half of Europe to get to the Red Bull Ring. What better time to bring Sizap in as a sponsor to the Paddock Pass podcast? Sizap is the motorcycle tracker that becomes a podcast team's best friend. We're able to track Dave's movements across the continent, which also means that we can avoid Dave for as long as possible before the Grand Prix. Because with Sizap, you get your real-time location for your bike, a history of all your trips, notifications can be sent to your contacts if you have a crash, and most importantly, you can share your route with your friends. And as we'll hear from Dave, he's been able to share his route with Cormac GP on the way out to Austria. Sizap has no monthly contract, but you also get 10% off if you use the promo code PADDOCK at sizap.com. So, David, what better time to bring you into the Paddock Pass podcast? You're down in, as we know, southern Germany at the minute, and uh, you're just about getting ready to make the final trek across Austria with Cormac. Yeah, we've got uh, two days of mountains ahead, me and Cormac, so uh, looking forward to that. Uh, it's been quite a pleasant ride uh, down so far, apart from last night when it started absolutely tipping it with rain. And I was riding along, because you know when it sort, of, it sort of spits with rain for a little bit, and you think, ah, no, it'll be fine, it'll stop in a moment, and it does that for about an hour. So you, you think you're completely convinced that it's not going to actually rain, and then there were, it absolutely chucked it down for about a half an hour. Uh, and it took me about 15 minutes to decide to put my waterproofs on, so... Um, uh, that was obviously a bad life choice, but uh, not for the first time. Yeah, I was going to say, Dave, you've made quite a few bad life choices in the past. Adam, I'm not going to say it's a bad life choice for you, but unfortunately for this week's pod, you've got yourself a little bit isolated in the mountains around Barcelona, and uh, you're going to just have to deal with just the Zoom audio from Adam Wheeler over the course of this pod. But Ad, we saw an MXGP champion crowned. You know, what are the MotoGP lads doing? They're they're hanging around far too long to to become world champions. Yeah, apologies for the poor audio, Steve, but that's probably um, a blessing in disguise, I think, you know, for some people listening to the podcast. And before we go on, can I just say, can you make an actual effort to say the proper event name? Because Dave and I have, you know, have a little verbal wrestle over Osterreich, and I think it's um, only appropriate that you try as well. Right. Of skip let, 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 me actually, let me actually just find the full name of the Austrian Grand Prix. And uh, like I said, if you want to just mention about uh, Tim Geiser as well, it's a, it's a big deal for uh, the off-track world. Yeah, MHGP has been decided already two rounds ahead of uh, the end of the season. Uh, those guys go on to third Grand Prix in a row, actually, um, which is going to be happening the same weekend that we're in Austria, which will be in France. But uh, yeah, Geiser's now won his fourth Premier Class title since 2016. The man's a bit of a monster. Um, and you know, it's, it's another title for HRC. So, uh, I mean, he laid the, the rock really for that championship with six wins in the first seven rounds. Um, and since then he's been kind of just monitoring the situation, hasn't been taking too many risks. And, uh, it's a complete contrast to the championship that MSGB had last year, where you had three riders almost tied on points going into the last round. So it was, uh, we've been trying to describe it in the, politest possible way but it has been a bit of a hangover from 2021 but um fair play to guys i mean the guy is, uh, is is a legend and he's underrated i think yeah and uh, one man that isn't underrated is big neil morrison and uh, neil you've had a hectic couple of weeks since silverstone holidaying in the uk and getting yourself back to barcelona to get yourself ready for the crypto data motorrad grand prix van osterreich 
Very well good. done. Well done. That's very good. It, it, it was close. I mean, like Österreich, but uh... fuck off, Dave. It was fine. It was fine. My my secondary school level of German has left me with total confidence in how to say crypto data. <laughs> a second year and a, a second interest in a crypto partner for this Grand Prix. I think it was bitchy last year, and this year it's a crypto data. So um, yeah, yeah. What, what, whatever is, happened. Yeah, whatever happened to Beachy? Because uh, I uh, seem to recall there were, uh, there were some news headlines about them recently. But sure, I'm sure it'll all be fine. I, I, it'll I, work out I lost a lot of a lot of money with uh, w- with bitches over there, uh, bitching over the year. But uh, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, Neil, Neil. Anyway, um, back to you, Neil. Um, you've obviously been busy since uh, Silverstone, getting getting yourself caught up with everyone in the UK, and now you're getting ready to to head back to Austria and then for the next round. Yeah, enough of those bitchy comments about crypto, guys. We know it's the future uh, in terms of current. Uh, but yeah, no, it's been it's been very nice. Had a nice little uh, holiday, summer holiday between uh, Silverstone and uh, and Austria. Heading tomorrow morning was in Copenhagen for the weekend, which was uh, fabulous. We had like thirty degrees of temperature right the way through. Um, yeah, we went swimming in the river. Um, it was uh, really most pleasant indeed. So um, I hope now we're going to uh, swap those really balmy temperatures for uh, a little bit of uh, a little bit of cool up in the uh, Austrian mountains because uh, I haven't slept properly. I think in about f- maybe five or six weeks. It's time to get uh, it's time to get back to the cool. Yeah, it's a guilty conscience that you have there, Neil, and uh, that'll bring <laughs> us actually on quite nicely to one of our big talking points for uh, this weekend's Grand Prix because one man that probably hasn't slept too well, Aleix Espargaro, who's obviously had his heel injury, but also hasn't been on the podium for the last four rounds. This weekend's race becomes really important for him in terms of his World Championship challenge, just to make sure he's able to get himself back into that hunt. Oh, yeah, but I mean, he's still he's still there. He only lost one point to Fabio at uh, Silverstone. Uh, obviously, the the big problem for everyone is is Pekka Banyaya, and he's you know he's just on an absolute roll at the moment. Um, and we're going to Austria, which is traditionally a a Ducati track. So yeah, I mean, Alicia Spargro needs to reset. He needs to uh, sort himself out. But I think the Aprilia is going to work very well around the, uh, the, the around the Red Bull run. The changes made to the bike make it very very complete. I mean, it's not only the injury, but I think he has to now start worrying about his teammate. Uh, maybe worry is the, the wrong word because remember Mignales has, has said at Silverstone that he's prepared to help Alesh in any way possible so if he is ahead of him on the racetrack I can imagine I can see him moving over but Alesh hasn't been on the podium now for four Grand Prix so I think he needs to if he's serious about winning the world championship he needs to sort of elevate his if not his performance or he has to get lucky or whatever he needs to get back on the box because you know the points differential compared to, say, like MXGP, for example, in MotoGP is, is much is, is deeper. So I don't think Alesh can hang around on the periphery of the top five for too much longer. He really needs to get another trophy to keep up with the Ducatis. And let's face it, guys, because as Dave says, Red Bull Wing Ring is a, a Ducati track, or it's been a KTM track on, on one or two occasions. You know, we then go to Mizana, we then go to Aragon. If Peko Bagnaia can win in Red Bull Ring this weekend, then he's going to really be in a great situation for the next couple of GPs. Talk about momentum. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the momentum is certainly with Peko at the moment. Um, I think Fabio might have had a couple of sleepless nights uh, since Silverstone. Um, we know that the Yamaha 
isn't so great whenever it's uh, caught in traffic and it's maybe, um, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh in the pack. Um, and it's very hard to envision uh, Fabio's Yamaha uh, entering, um, you know, the, the uphill hairpin on the first lap in first or, or second position. And that automatically uh, seems to, to, to put him at a, at a big disadvantage. Um, you know, front tire might be overheating. Uh, rear tire was overheating at Silverstone. Um, you know, qualifying is going to be absolutely crucial for him uh, in Austria. And if he doesn't qualify in the first two rows, then I think he can almost kiss goodbye to any hopes of, uh, of a podium. But, I mean, do you not remember last year? Um, Fabio rode an absolutely astonishing couple of races last year. Um, he was making up 20, 30 metres on the brakes, uh, especially into, was it, turn four? Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, and, and turn one. I mean, he was just, he was just outbreaking everyone everywhere. Uh, so uh, I think he's less worried about that. I think the chicane is going to have a really big effect I have no idea what effect it's going to have. Well, that was actually just what I was going to ask, Dave, because now that we've changed the layout of the track and you go from not so much a fast first corner, but at least an, an opening first corner that widens out and lets you use all the track to suddenly the chicane, very much stop, start. You're going to just have to get it stood up to get up the top of the hill. Like that should play against Yamaha's strength as well. So it's certainly not going to be easy for Fabio this weekend and when you look at it that over the last two rounds he had the crash in Assen he had you know eight points at Silverstone it's been a tough two rounds and then you go to what could be another tough one like Neil if you were if you were Fabio how would you be feeling about that new chicane um yeah probably a bit nervous to be honest Steve just because of, of what you said I mean um you know coming out of turn one was already um you know, fairly slow and having to to really um, accelerate with uh, all the machines might, but now you're kind of delaying that a little bit further up the straight. And we know that um, certainly the uh, the Aprilia, the Ducatis, they have like serious punch coming out of low gear corners. Um, the Yamaha is uh, incredibly agile, however, and Fabio is, you know, riding the, the absolute wheels off it, has been all year. Um, it, it's tough to really say exactly how it will, how it will impact the spectacle. Um, I mean, it is there for safety, but I don't know whether um, on the first lap it's it's going to be um, a great deal safer than uh, than what we had uh, previously. We'll we'll just have to wait and see um, on Friday, and then of course on Sunday when we have the racing. But um, yeah, it's difficult. For, I mean, you said there about Fabio's previous two races, Netherlands and Silverstone. I'm pretty sure after his wins in Catalonia and Germany, he was looking at those two races and thinking, "This is where I can basically." Uh, still a march in the championship and all but wrap it up but he's come away um, with just eight points from a possible 50 and um, and as Ad uh, just said you know the next couple of race tracks are good for Peko are good for Ducati I mean he absolutely has to be on his A game um, in the next couple of weeks to make sure he's heading to the flyaways uh, still in the championship lead I think what do we what do we feel about this chicane I mean it's of course it's been installed for a good reason safety but I am, and as Neil says, we have to wait and see how it will impact the racing or the or the lap time. But I just think it's a crying shame when a racetrack has to resort to, you know, installing basically something that screws up a natural trajectory of of, of the course. I know certain circuits have problems with their tire walls or the boundaries of the, you know, the the track limits or the safety roads or whatever. But 
Um, I, I the idea of going to the Red Bull Ring this week and seeing a, a dirty great chicane chucked in after turn one just uh, makes me feel a little sad. Yeah, I mean, uh, I agree. It had to be. Um, I mean, there is a problem. I mean, basically, the Red Bull Ring is a dangerous track, and it's it's not really safe for MotoGP. But it's been homologated, and we go to race there, so uh, there's that. Um, it's a shame that we lose turn two because it was just one of the most magnificent uh, 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 corners because of the way it's you know the riders were wrestling the bike from one side to get it stopped to uh, uh, to turn right again for for, for, for for turn two or yeah turn one turn two um and it that i think completely ruins it that however the i mean it was a magnificent section of track but it was also absolutely lethal because there was nowhere for the riders to go if anything went wrong uh i don't think the chicane actually fixes it i think the chicane makes it um, it just it changes the danger because it's still possible to you know if you lose the front going into uh, uh, braking for that chicane uh, then you're just going to cut straight across the chicane and take out whoever's ahead of you so I don't think it really uh, fixes much it'll certainly fix it up at um, uh, God I don't even know how many numbers what, what the which corners we're talking about anymore it's become it's become incredibly complicated but uh, yeah I mean at, at the top of the hill will be a lot safer it'll also be a lot less um a lot less spectacular I disagree with Neil a bit about uh, the, the Yamaha's acceleration because uh, the, where the Yamaha is good is from quite low speeds, um, it gets it can get grip. Um, once the Ducati gets going, it's really uh, you know the, the, there's just no catch in it. But uh, uh, it's been it, it has been reasonably good at getting uh, getting drive, um, and it's going to be interesting to see if more if more riders bring uh, or more of Ducati's riders start using that front ride height device to, to see if it gives an advantage. Neil, I'm actually really interested over the course of this weekend. Could you, for our Patreon followers at patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast, could you record Dave during free practice one of MotoGP just counting on his hand the <laughs> each, each each corner with one finger? There's turn one, two, three, four. Okay, so it's, it's turn five now. That's okay. That's what we're calling it. That's okay. I think that would be excellent content and well worth $10, $10 a month. Exactly. And you can do it in German. And uh <laughs> pronounce all the uh, the the corners uh, correctly while he's at it as well. Uh, well, I'd have to learn the names. Well, I mean, it'll be easy. It'll be uh, eins, zwei, drei, vier, fünf, sechs, sieben, and uh, uh, however many corners there are. So yeah, easy. Oh, Dave, I love it when you talk dirty with us. No, are you a fan of the games? No, not particularly. No, and usually, I mean, chicanes are. Are the kind of things that uh, that ruin racetracks, and I mean this one. GT, um, <coughs> GT, hello, um, Assen. I mean, like yeah. literally, but literally that uh, that that oi, chicane oi, makes oi, the racetrack. I was trying to make <laughs> the a point GT, here. Dave. Yes, the GT. Wait, wait, whoa, 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 wait, wait a second. The GT. Yes, Dave. yes, the GT. You made a big deal over the course of the Dutch TT round for people calling it the GT chicane when it's not. No, I didn't. The GT no, 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 no. Other people made a big thing about calling it the uh, uh, the the Geert Timmer chicane, uh, but no one calls it the Geert Timmer chicane because it's too long a name. All of the Dutch people I know call it the GT or the GT. Well, I'll be honest. Whenever I went 
to Aston over the last few years. I was corrected about it and it was called just the chicane and the GT <laughs> was was the corner leading into it. Into it. Uh, so, that's, uh, that, do, do you know what? I stand corrected. That is actually that is actually uh, factually correct. I'm sorry. And anyway, I'm so sorry. I interrupted. Uh, I interrupted Neil. I'm not. I'm not sorry for interrupting Neil. Whenever <laughs> Dave says he was wrong about something, then it's perfectly acceptable. It's a racetrack with the most ridiculous names, anyway. So just give me a large GT and let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> and is it not the Rams hook that leads into the chicane at Aston? Anyway, we digress. Um, what I wanted to say was when you know a chicane is put in as a sort of stopgap measure for safety purposes, usually it takes away a great deal from the kind of original character of the track. Obviously, there's some exceptions with uh, you know chicanes providing excellent overtaking uh, opportunities and uh, being excellent spots on the track like Aston, like Suzuka. The chicanes are, are magnificently placed there for last lap overtaking opportunities. But, I mean, obviously we have to see how... Grand Prix bikes uh, take this chicken before we make a, a definitive sort of uh, a judgment on it. However, um, looking at the photos of it, it does look a bit a bit hackneyed, and um, you know this is as Dave said, the 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 left before the previous turn three, uh, the uphill uh, right uh, hairpin. I mean that was one of the the great sort of uh, awe inspiring points on the calendar, along with you know the turn or the the crest at Mugello and, and a few other spots where you could see um, MotoGP riders really at the uh, at the limits of trying to keep a bike under control and, and, and brake. Um, that is going to be less than now, which is a bit of a shame. Hopefully that area will still be uh, safer. I mean, there's probably less chance of someone crashing or losing the front at that point um, and then maybe following across the grass and, um, you know, hitting someone um, that is exiting that top uh, uh, that top hairpin, like we saw in 2020 in the MotoGP race where Rossi and Vinales were so nearly taken out by uh, Zarco and Morbidelli's machines. Um, but it still doesn't eradicate it completely. I mean, there's still a possibility of losing, tucking the front at that point on track and um, skittling some riders ahead. So um, I would say there's plenty of questions that remain um, regarding the chicane before, before we go there. Um, but it does seem that it does look as though it might uh, really alter the the kind of the character of the track and the flow of the track. Adam, just about the change that you see and, and neutering a racetrack with the chicanes, like it's always worth noting that for the Red Bull Ring, we know it as the Red Bull Ring or the A1 Ring, like it was when it came onto the Grand Prix calendar twenty five years ago. But whenever it was the the Ice Strike Ring, it was the most incredible track. And when the A1 Ring came. Everyone said, oh, what have they done to this? They've ruined one of the great tracks out there. So naturally, as tracks evolve, we always complain about the fact that they've changed the character. They've done this. They've done that. The chicane that they've put in looks like a just a proper stopgap. And there was no real thought went into it from a MotoGP perspective. And we're going to end up with, like Dave said, losing out in a great corner. But... Given the the speed of MotoGP bikes now, the aero and all that, Dave, I think that's where we could end up seeing it, that it's not going to be as big of an impact as it would have been a few years ago. I think it, it'd be interesting to see how it all plays out and what the riders have to say. Riders aren't going to like it because not many of them like slow first gear chicanes, but it'd be interesting to see how it's going to gonna play out. I'm more afraid about Moto3, to be honest. Um, you know, watching a potentially... They'll like still a, take the old track, Ad. They'll just go down the escape <laughs> road. What's the problem there? I'm saying you've got ten to you know, ten to twelve riders all trying to funnel in through a chicane, Steve. It could get messy. 
in a couple of laps. I mean, Silverstone was a magnificent Grand Prix for Moto3. Scary at times, you know, as the rise went through sort of, you know, uh, Maggots and Beckett's and Maggots and Chapel on that section there. But, you know, I think we had, there was not, well, there was the top 20 split by like three seconds, I think, for the duration of the Grand Prix. And then we had six crashes in the last two laps as riders obviously tried to push the limit. But, uh, you know, coming, that throwing that extra chicane into the mix of Red Bull Ring is, um, I, I can see it being a problem. And everyone's going to be asked about it. It's going to be the main topic of conversation in the debriefs. Uh, obviously, it's going to transform the lap, give us a new lap time as well. And um, it's funny you mentioned the old layout because I saw a video on social media this week. I think it was a, a clip of the old Formula One Grand Prix in Austria. And Gilles Villeneuve had made a, an amazing start from wherever he was on the grid to almost snare the lead in that race. And to see, you know, how fast and how kind of sprawling that old track was, it was pretty special. I don't know. I guess I'm a little bit old school, but I just think you should, you know, not mess with circuits. In the interest of safety, of course, you have to take measures, but it's a shame just to, you know, carve a big um, hick into, into one of the most spectacular parts on the calendar, as Neil says. Well, the other side of that coin as well is if you look at the changes that were made to Silverstone, it made it so much of a better racetrack as well. For for bikes, at least. Like, I think for F1 cars, it's debatable, but for for the MotoGP circuit, what we have now compared to what the old Grand Prix layout was, other than losing out on Bridge Corner, everything else is, is a vast improvement, really. And you can make changes and make it where the track is safer, where you're still able to to have great racing, and that's where the chicanes are, the chicanes are the the lazy man's way of, of being able to make a change, and that's what's going to be for me one of the the big things to keep an eye on over the course of this weekend. We're going to take a break in the Paddock Pass podcast, but when we come back, we're going to talk to Adam a little bit about uh, one of the big technologies in MotoGP. Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars are premium race-spec clip-ons available in nine different options, two different offsets, and six different diameters, all developed in collaboration with top-level race teams. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. Adam, I teased everyone before the ad break that we were going to talk to you about one of the big technologies in MotoGP, and it's going to be about the the shoulder cam that we see more and more of during the course of a Grand Prix weekend. But the reason that I wanted to talk to you about it is you've actually just done a big piece on it for uh, the Telegraph. So it's always an interesting thing whenever you get to sit down with the people behind all that technology, see how they've developed it and uh, what their plans are for it, really. Yeah, Steve, I think you might have overhyped it by saying it's a new big technology in Red GP, but um, it's definitely, like you say, a big part of the broadcast. And I think if you see um, Formula One's helmet cam, uh, you know, the POV they have, I'm not sure how many drivers they have carrying it on the live, but um, I, yes, to cut a long story short, I did a, a feature on it. I'm still waiting to see whether the Telegraph will spike it or run it. But um, I spoke with Sergi Sendra, who's now Dorna Sports' head of global technology. Um, he used to be the head of the TV um, direction, but now he's got a sort of a new role. Um, and it was a, a quite an interesting discussion, actually. And then I spoke also to Alpine Stars, who, along with Ixon, I'm not sure if anybody from Daneasy is running the camera, but um, you know, Alpine Stars were probably one of the first big firms to help integrate this camera into a rider's leathers. And we saw it for the first time last year in the Algarve Grand Prix, uh, last October or November, I think Alex Rins used it for the first time in Portimao. 
but um it's it's fascinating stuff i mean sergio was telling me the the shoulder cam um is a bit of a game changer because you know we've seen things like gopros especially in supercross and motocross and other extreme sports or if you see people jumping off a cliff with these kind of winged suits um you know we've seen those kind of perspectives for a number of years but this uh, technology that Dorna have, which is basically a very, very small camera with fantastic auto stabilization, um, a cable, uh, a fiber optic cable, and a transmitter, which is stored inside the rider's hump and their leathers. Um, you know, this thing has been through seven generations uh, of development uh, in two years, and it's gone from weighing over a kilo to do half of that. So it's about 500 grams. Um, it's still a bit of a, a subject that's in development and in discussion. Um, some riders either don't want to wear it or they they don't have space for it. Brad Binder said to me in Silverstone that he would love to run the camera, but the, he's actually worked with Ixon and KTM in the wind tunnel to mould the, the hump on his leathers for maximum aerodynamic efficiency. And there's actually no room for the transmitter to go inside. So there are little obstacles like that for having say, like a whole grid carrying the, the, the shoulder cameras. And the reason we're mentioning it now, Steve, at this particular time is that if there's any visitors going to the Red Bull Ring, there is an onboard camera museum where Dorna have set up all of these cabinets and displays charting the first use of the onboard camera technology, which I think was the early 80s at the, you know, the circuit people like to refer to as in a religious sense. Um, you know, with Randy Mamola carrying this rather large unit inside um, his, his, his fairing bubble. Uh, that was the first one that made it onto a live TV broadcast. And then Dorna's, uh, I think their march of technology with this particular way of showing MotoGP has been fantastic. I mean, if you see some of the innovations they've brought up, particularly over the last 10 years with the gyro and the, and the different positioning on the bikes, um, the shoulder cam, just to wrap everything up, means that they can now have five different camera positions on each bike. And uh, the rider himself is like an autonomous camera operator. You know, in theory, Dorna could follow the rider is in part ferme when he goes on the podium or when he's crashed and is walking away. So it's um, it's, it's timely that to talk about this stuff as well as, you know, potentially go and see some of the old stuff at the Red Bull ring. So um, fair play to Dorna. I think it's one of the one of the best and most interesting things they've they've brought to the presentation of MotoGP. Yeah, on, on the one hand, I love the shoulder cam. And on the other hand, it's just intensely frustrating because you're desperately trying to see what the riders do with his left hand and there are uh, a lot of the time is just out of shot and you sort of like a tree and try to peer around a corner at it and it's not quite working so um yeah i mean it's amazing honestly like it, it, one of the best things that don't want to do is their camera work it, uh especially all the stuff like the 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 onboard stuff and uh just the perspective i just wish we had all of the uh, perspectives available to us at the moment if you've got a MotoGP.com subscription you've got like four different feeds you can choose from uh, and also those feeds it'll be one rider for the entire race uh, but it will then sort of switch perspectives sometimes it's the forward facing cam sometimes it's the tail cam sometimes it's the rider facing cam and it sort of like switches in between depending on what the um, uh, the director feels is interesting but you you, you just really desperately wish you had access to every single feed of every single rider um, uh, after the race, so you could actually go through and watch the whole thing. Would have would have solved the mystery if um, Fabio's uh, uh, mystery uh, opening leathers uh, in in a heartbeat. I was actually just going to say, Dave, that one of the things I found interesting recently was at Mast for the check round. Obviously, whenever there's sessions on track for superbikes, I'm always in the commentary box, but 
for one of the super sports sessions, uh, myself and, and Alex, my co-commentator, were invited into the TV truck to be able to see how for a superbike round the guys work in the TV truck. And obviously MotoGP is a much bigger scale, a bigger team, a lot more resources compared to superbikes. But it was really interesting to see that, you know, you, you had basically like a, a Wall Street floor of everyone trying to sell their product. And you had the onboard <laughs> cameraman trying to say, no, you need to go to this. You need to go to that. And you had someone else trying to sell something else. But uh, in, in MotoGP, with the sheer volume of onboard cameras, like there's so many different things that they're able to show. And, and that's why when you look at the broadcast, you see them interchange all the way in in between all the different onboards especially in gp i mean for all the speed and you know the spectacle steve of watching it in motor gp i'd also love to see it used in motor 3 i mean you know those guys are almost literally rubbing shoulders sometimes and you know the way they are um fitting so tightly into the kind of the slipstream and also the profile of the bike i think a shoulder cam in motor 3 would be fairly spectacular although i wouldn't want to give neil any more calls for anxiety when he's trying to call the shots <laughs> i think one of the biggest problems that you have with that though is you have to be able to pick the rider that's going to be at the front <laughs> or in that lead battle and in moto 3 it, that's very difficult like we we end up like in 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 super bikes there's obviously only a handful of onboard cameras so they have to choose like which ride are you putting it with or more to the point are you putting it with a forward facing camera or a rear facing camera if you're looking at you know johnny Toprak and bautista as your your three primary riders that are always going to have those onboard cameras do you think alvaro is going to be out in front and breaking away so you need to have a, a, a rear facing camera or is he going to be coming through so in moto 3 could you imagine the discussion that they'd have to have about which of these 20 riders like you talked about it earlier adam the whole way through the british grand prix there was only a couple of seconds separating all the riders inside the top 20 so which of those guys are you going to put the very expensive uh shoulder cam onto so i think that that's probably one of the biggest challenges that they have obviously enough other than being able to go to the museum being able to drink a few cans of red bull there's quite a bit of news ahead of the Austrian Grand Prix as well because Mark Marquez is going to be back in the paddock so we'll be able to get a bit of an update, Neil, on uh, his condition and whether or not we're going to see him back in action at any stage during the rest of this year. Yeah, that's, uh, that's I guess, what we're all hoping for, Steve, to maybe um, get a, a glimpse of Mark. Um, it remains to be seen whether he's going to be speaking to the media during his weekend in Austria, but um, there was quite an interesting interview that was released last week, I think by Repsol on the Bias team, um, by Repsol as his uh, sponsor as well, um, in which he was basically detailing some of um, his recovery steps. Seems that things are going okay at the moment, um, but I still think there's a there's another important checkup that he has to have at the end of this month um, to see whether he can intensify his training uh, further still. Um, his intention is uh, to be back racing by the end of this year. Um, I mean, he said in a in an ideal world, he'll maybe complete the uh, the last two races of the year um, at uh, Sepang and then Valencia. Um, he believes that uh, the mistake he made after his previous injury um, in 2020 and then the first couple of races in 2021 was to be a bit too detached um, from the goings-on in the Repsol garage. So when he did come back, he was kind of struck by uh, the myriad of issues that... Um, the uh, the RC two one three V was uh, was presenting him with. Um, he wants to be a bit more dialed in, um, have a bit more idea of what exactly is going on, and and to be sort of uh, intimately aware of what 
um, Honda is planning to do to uh, eradicate the, the kind of issues that it's got at the moment. So he's going to be there this weekend, I think, just you know, to look at data, to listen to rider comments, to maybe watch out on track and see how the Honda's reacting. I mean, it's been an absolutely shocking, shocking run from Honda in the last, uh, you know, four or five Grand Prix. It's just been, it's just been desperate, really. Um, I think, you know, Paul Spargro basically described their season as going from, uh, from paradise to hell. And um, yeah, Mark um, will be back to, to kind of oversee what's going on. Um, you have to imagine he'll be in contact at the Mizano test that'll be coming up after the Mizano race in, in September um, to, to understand exactly what, what HRC has brought to, to the party there. Um, I mean, it seems ambitious to be wanting the race again this year, but you know, this is Mark that we're dealing with. And I guess uh, it will obviously be dependent on how his recovery comes along. Um, but um, it seems that if his recovery does go to plan, then uh, we could well see him racing maybe just once or twice uh, in 2022 again. I mean, Neil makes a good point there, but I think that Mark really needs to come back. I think he has to get on the motorcycle again without any ambition or any target or whatsoever, but he needs to ride that thing. He maybe needs to try one or two suggestions that the Honda have to improve it because he's in the unique situation as well as having um, a housemate and a family member who has probably been slagging the, pa the package off all year uh, and now is probably far more relieved to be jumping on a, a Desmos Adichie next season. Um, so I, I think Mark really needs to lend some sort of input to HRC for a direction for next year. Uh, they need him. Um, and I think maybe by the Valencia test, it could be, oh, well, of course it's not too late because they had the whole off-season to work on the model for next year, but I think it would be, um, beneficial that HRC get their lead rider in with some kind of suggestions or some sort of direction. Yeah, I think really important to get that. I'd considering that four months ago we were so optimistic about Honda's prospects this year. The winter tests had gone really well. It looked like in Qatar that they were set up really well for a good season. They need Mark to come back and and show some direction because the the project, considering that it had moved away from being a, a Mark Marquez bike to uh, being one that should have been more user-friendly for everyone else hasn't worked at all. And I think that's going to be really key. To, if they can just get him back for one or two rounds, it would give a big benefit. The risk is that he comes back too early and um, damages his arm again, stops his healing. The most important thing, and this was um, what I took especially from that interview, is that uh, Mark understands that this is his last chance. There are no... There are no more chances after this. If he messes this up, if he comes back too early um, and, you know, weakens his arm again, breaks the bone, whatever, uh, uh, puts too much force in it and so it twists, it twists again, um, then that's his racing career over. So he's in a real, it, it's a real dilemma. I mean, like, I think also he will definitely be back at uh, Valencia to do at least one race so that he can do the one-day Valencia test on the Tuesday. Um, however, it's a risk. It's it's still a risk. I mean, he has to be... We have at least, like, you know, we've seen him training. He's been doing weights. He's been doing... Uh, he's been able to sort of put some force into the bone to, to, to start to strengthen it. But it's such an enormous risk. I, I don't think you can overstate just how delicate a situation this is. Neil, just about other injuries as well. 
I'm I'm quite keen to see what happens with Saint Aegis and Moto Two this weekend as well. Obviously, in to replace Sam Lowe's after his shoulder injury, and uh, Senna has been really strong in the European Championship this year. Stepped up from having done very little on a Moto Three bike; it just didn't seem to suit him at all. But uh, he was always very highly regarded by Leon Camier, who works as a bit of a mentor for him. And whenever I've been at any of the the junior GP rounds this year, CEV rounds in the last few years, Camier's always been there with him. They train together in Andorra, do an awful lot. And Camier has raved about Senna for the last few years. And now he gets the chance to jump onto a Moto2 World Championship bike. It's going to be exciting to see how he gets on. It is, Steve, yeah, exactly. Just uh, 17 years of age. I mean, um, you know, you have to, your heart has to go out to Sam Lowe's, first of all, for, um, you know, this uh, this injury that they discovered after the Silverstone crash. I think once the swelling went down, they realized that he hadn't just dislocated his shoulder, but he had also fractured the top of his, uh, of his humerus, I think, in his uh, in his arm. Um, you know, just uh, make, made a, what was a difficult season even more difficult and complicated. Um, so yeah, Senna looks like is in for the next two races, and, and I guess maybe maybe more depending on the recovery time of Sam. Um, but yeah, he does look uh, he does look a prospect, as you said, Steve. Limited Model Two experience before this year, yet he's been up um, fighting with um, Tulovic, uh, who's leading the uh, European Model Two Championship at the moment. He's kind of being touted uh, to step up into the World Championship next year. Um, he's still just 17. He's already won two races in Barcelona. Um, so yeah, huge, huge prospect. Um, and it's good to see Mark VDS going with, uh, with youth. I think, um, you know, they were also contemplating maybe looking at uh, a more experienced name to deputise for Lowe's. Someone like Mattia Pessini, for example, who um, scored points when he jumped into the class again at Mugello after, I think, two years away. Um, he was maybe uh, in the running for it, but um, yeah, Senna August, um, one to look out for in Moto2. Probably a name that we might be seeing a lot more of in the next year, maybe two years. Yeah, it's a little bit interesting as well. Like you said, that they went down this route, Neil, because one of the big things for them is that We've seen in the past that for the CEV Moto2 Championship, it's never been one that you've been able to really bank on having a superstar come through. And then with uh, Fermin Aldeguer and uh, Lopez even coming in for the last half dozen rounds in Moto2 this year, we've been able to see two riders that have been able to firmly establish themselves on the World Championship stage after being successful in the European Championship, which hadn't really happened since, you're probably going back to Jordi Torres, was the last time we saw someone do that. Augusto Fernandez, maybe? Um, Wasn't he? Well, Augusto came from stock six more than anything else, mm. I think. Uh, I, but um, I think he might have gone into, in, in, yeah, you're probably right, where he went into the Moto2 Championship as well. Yeah, I have to have a wee check on that, Neil. But um, let me just. But you're right, Steve, the Morrison. <laughs> but you're right, Steve. There have been a, a whole host of European Moto Two runners that have come into the World Championship and just uh, disappeared without trace. Oh, I tell you what, Neil, I have just looked at uh, looked at Augusto, and uh, sure enough, he did five races in 2018, and uh, he won one of them, and it was on the podium in all five, and then jumped onto the Pons bikes. So, yeah, doubt the Morrison, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, was, it wasn't so much that I was doubting them. I just remember him coming from Stock 600 just before I was in the Superbike paddock. So obviously that was what was clouding my judgment on it. Yes. Um, so, yeah, that should be interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, he still is young enough. I think some of the guys that come in from the European 
Moto 2 Championship. You know, they've, they've been there for years. They may be in their mid-twenties, which, you know, by GP terms is, uh, is, is an old fogey. Um, you know, he's still young enough that he can come in, jump in, and, um, and basically get up to speed, adapt. So, um, yeah, excited to see how he does over the next couple of rounds. Well, Dave, what about the rest of the news that we're going to see in Austria? There's always some sort of uh, KTM news at the Austrian round. We're obviously still waiting for Ducati to confirm their factory lineup for next year. So this is this is a big weekend again in that battle for the, the second seat at the factory Ducati. Yeah, I mean, I would expect a, a Ducati announcement at Misano. It's, it, that would make more sense. It's their home, uh, it's their other home round and it's their main test track. Um uh, I mean, we're we're sort of expecting Paul Spargaro to be announced this weekend. Uh, we are sort of expecting a second um, uh, uh, the, the the second seat uh, at KTM to be or at Tech Three to be uh, uh, to be sort of um, sorted out. Um, yeah, I mean, if there's going to be any news out of um, was it Munderfing, uh, the, uh, the the Austrian KTM base, it's, it's going to be this weekend. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if this. We should also be getting the calendar. The calendar should be coming out soon. But my understanding is, is it's going to be a 21 race calendar, including um, uh, the Kimi Ring in Finland. So um, that will. I mean, that's going to disappear, obviously. Uh, but it, it's going to be on there for contractual purposes. So it's going to be interesting to see how that all sorts out. But I think they're still waiting for the, for, for the F1 calendars to be officially announced uh, to make sure that there's no overlap. And uh, Adam, just to, to finish off the show, we're going to kick off with you for the predictions for this weekend because obviously after Silverstone, you had no reason to be spoken at all. But um, what is your predictions for this weekend in Austria? Steve, just one comment actually on what Dave was saying and Paula Spargaro, I mean, we are expecting him to go back to KTM. I mean, in his media debriefs, he hasn't been very uh, coy about you know where he's going next year. I mean, he's been referencing the different working cultures between Japanese and European teams. I think some people might be surprised that he's going back to KTM, but Paul, I know he's very highly valued inside the factory for his achievements and what he did for the, the RC16 project. And I do wonder if maybe KTM have looked at the the Tech 3 and the Red Bull KTM factory setup and thought, well, you know, the idea was to make Tech 3 more of a junior team, but then seeing the progress that, you know, Ralph Fernandez and Remy Gardner, I mean, there has there have been incremental gains, especially in the case of Gardner, I think, in the last couple of races. But then, you know, maybe with the stage of development the bike is at, they need a little bit more of an experienced figure again. They tried that with Danilo Petrucci, but... You know, Danilo, of course, was somewhat inhibited by the the Michelin rear tyre that has come into play over the last two to three seasons. Uh, so I think, you know, they're looking at Paul again to revive or, let's say, make both KTM teams more competitive. Um, when it comes to the second rider, I think it might be a situation like Ducati where, you know, KTM are looking at Remy Gardner and saying, listen, show us some, not show us some results, but show us some attitudes, show us some, Show us some progress. Uh, show us some kind of positivity. Um, you know, to whether you know he can regain that seat, or you know whether he actually even wants it. I mean, I don't really know where Remy could go if he steps out of Tech Three. But, that, that, um, that's you know that 
that that's the thing. I mean, like it's not as if uh, th there's a lot of choice. I mean, basically, the fact is the teams can afford to wait for as long as they like uh, because there are we're losing two seats and there's there's a lot more riders than there are seats. Well, also, you have to. I mean, like Neil said, you know, when he highlighted the the, the plight of Honda this year, um, anybody who's anybody, I think, in MotoGP would jump at a Repsol Honda seat, but maybe Juan Mir, you know, whose results have been pretty torrid in the last couple of races. Would also be looking around, thinking, well, you know, would I be better off with, with an RNF Aprilia, or maybe even like a Tech Three KTM, or you know, do I go down a Repsol Honda route and spend my time chasing my tail, crashing and getting frustrated? So I don't think the market is completely closed, even though half a dozen races ago it seemed pretty obvious where people were going to go. There were multiple rumors uh, at Silverstone as to why. Uh, Mir and Repsol still haven't signed. Um, I think maybe the most credible one was just um, the fact that it's, it's still over money. Um, you know, I think Mir's camp were saying uh, to some members of the Spanish media that they feel that um, Repsol's offer is, is far too small um, currently for a rider that is a former MotoGP world champion. Um, and um, for, yeah, from Mir's camp, it, it did sound that, you know, if that was the final offer, Mir would prefer to just walk away and have a year at home than uh, than ride for what he would view as uh, as pittance. Obviously, it's not pittance, but um, for a rider that has won a MotoGP World Championship, it, it might be viewed as such. So, yeah, but he's not really helping his cause, is he? Because he's in probably the, the most rotten run of form um, of his career, I would say, in Grand Prix uh, at the moment. I mean, Mir, has, his season has just gone absolutely south since the... Uh, since the announcement that Hareth, uh, you know, was taken out of the race in Portugal, um, since then he's had a sixth, a fourth, and an eighth from uh, eight races. Um, the other times have been crashes or retirements. So, um, yeah, he's not necessarily helping his cause um, to uh, inflate uh, HRC's offer. And, and Steve, just coming back to your question, you said about predictions. Um, I said that Alessio Spargaro really needs to be hitting the podium again. Uh, like we mentioned, Fabio Quartararo needs to turn things around. Um, I think, you know, Fabio took a DNF, of course, in Holland and then in Silverstone, he equaled his second worst result of the season, I think. So I, I Pekka Bagnari is the most obvious choice at the moment, um, especially with the way he was riding at Silverstone. But I'm going to pick Jack Miller. He's had two podium results in the last three races. Um, you know, he's also another rider who seems to be in pretty good form and he's going to be riding at the home of his uh, future employer. Um, and, you know, Miller came incredibly close on that last lap chase with Espargaro and um, Miguel Oliveira only a couple of years ago. So, uh, yeah, if, uh, if one of the KDMs doesn't pop up with a surprise, then I think uh, Miller will be the Ducati rider we're going to be watching. Although, don't rule out Jorge Martin as well. I'm uh, very disappointed, Ad, because I was actually going to choose Jack as mine, <laughs> but uh, now I'll need to uh, revise that. So, Neil, what do I do? What's your prediction? <laughs> I think um, I think Banyaya is is probably the clear favourite. Um, you know, we had a wonderful Austrian Grand Prix last year, obviously, where the rain came in the last couple of laps, and uh, you know the five guys pitted uh, to change bikes. Um, Brad Binder didn't, and you know that was wonderful, uh, wonderful sort of chaotic climax to that race. However, had the rain not arrived, I think we would have also had a, a brilliant climax as well because it was shaping up to be a, a Marquez Banyaya. Um, 
you know, duel right until the flag. Um, and, you know, you could also say that Banyaya, I think he had uh, tire issues in the first Austrian Grand Prix we had last year, the Styrian Grand Prix, as it was called. You know, had that not happened, I think he would have been favorite for the race as well. So, yeah, I'm looking at, uh, at Banyaya as the favorite, not really uh, saying anything too revelatory here. But I would say one thing, um, I'm tipping Marco Bezzecchi to do something interesting this weekend. Maybe not win or be on the podium, but watch out for Bezzecchi, I think, because he loves this track. Super record here. Won in Moto3 in 2018. I think he's won twice in Moto2 in 2020 and then last year as well. Um, and he has been in good form second at Assen. Yes, he was 10th at Silverstone, but he was, uh, what, six seconds off the off the victory and actually had really, really strong rhythm right the way through the weekend after the race in Silverstone. Alicia Spargaro said that... Uh, after free practice, he was looking at Buzeki as a guy that could possibly be on the podium. So um, he's in good form. He's on the 2021, the GP21, obviously, which um, Jorge Martin just can't quite adapt completely to. He's still having some issues with. Um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see Buzeki in the top six. Oh, thank God you finally said an actual prediction at the end of that, Neil, because I was just going to say, David, what's your open-ended, interesting <laughs> thing to look out for in your predictions? Um, <clears throat> Bezeki is actually a good shout. I think uh, I think he could do something. You know, you will. You wouldn't be surprised if he did end up on the uh, on the podium. I, I mean, like it's hard to look past Banyar, but I don't think Banyar is just going to romp it like um, uh, like people expecting. I think Fabio Quattararo is going to push um, Pekka Banyar all the way because I think he's going to have the measure. I think. Uh, Fabio Quattararo understands how to beat the Ducatis at this racetrack. Um, uh, it, sure, the, the Ducatis have got more horsepower, but the, uh, uh, Fabio is just so much better on the brakes than, than, than pretty much anyone at the moment. Uh, and he knows how to get that Yamaha stopped in, 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 into the corner. So I really think that uh, Quattararo is going to be one to look out for. It's going to be interesting to see what Alessio Spargaro does because, you know, he's coming back off of a really big crash. He had a good race, um, but it, but he's had time to, like, go home and think about it, which is always... Um, th that can work one of two ways. It can either work... Uh, Sort of, in a, it can work in a positive way in that it sort of focuses your mind, but you can also go home and dwell on it and start to think uh, think about it, and also start to realise that uh, it, you're in a really difficult situation. That, that it is that there's a lot of pressure um, to not make mistakes like that, and when you start thinking about not making mistakes, you tend to make mistakes. So um, it's going to be interesting to see what uh, Alessia Spargaro does. But I mean, for me, I think it's going to be. Um, uh, Banyaya versus Quattararo for the win. Just another thing to take into account is the, the weather. I mean, we've got um, stormy forecast for Saturday and Sunday, so that could be another uh, um, spanner in the works potentially. So, um, yes, we shall see how that runs. I think for me, one of the interesting things you mentioned about elation, the injury, Dave, was speaking to a lot of riders about it. They all said the same thing. They said that the day after is easy because you get shot up, you get your adrenaline, everything's fine. You can get through it. But it's the week after that it becomes really difficult. That's when the bruising really takes effect. That's whenever you then realize how injured you are. So this weekend is going to be really important for him. It's going to be more of a challenge. We'll see how he deals with it. For my predictions, I'm going to go with a little bit of a mix and match of what uh, you guys have said. I'm going to say that we're going to have two Ducatis on the podium. I think it'll be 
Miller and Bagnaya. I think Vinales is going to be right there. He's been a pole man in Austria in the past. He's two podiums in a row. Let's say he makes a three. And then that means you know Fabio's going to be up against it. And I think if Fabio can come away with a top five, I think that could be the best he can do this weekend. I think it's going to be... any any If Fabio is able to get onto the podium, I think he's ridden unbelievably well. And I implore all three of you, and also, you know, listen to the podcast to change your fantasy teams, get them updated. We will be giving prizes away at the end of the season. And guys, I'm a little bit kind of, I'm struggling, you know, I get vertigo looking down all the time. Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Are you saying that it was a bad decision on my part not to have taken Mark out of the team? I think he scored as many points as the other Honda riders up until now anyway. So like leaving Mark on my team was was perfect strategy. A shrewd move, Steve. (laughs) Yeah, you know, saving up those transfers, Ad. I'll be honest, I am the world's worst man for uh, fantasies. Anytime that uh, I've done fantasy football or anything like that, I just leave the team set for the full season. They could all get injured. They could all fucking die in a horrendous plane crash, and I'd still be there. You know what? I think that center forward's still going to get me a few goals. I'll leave him in there. It should be okay. So the, the MotoGP fantasy team, there was no way I was going to actually keep myself actively involved in that. Obviously enough, though, Adam, there's an awful lot more to keep ourselves involved with with uh, patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast over the course of this Grand Prix weekend. We'll be getting everyone up to date all the way through with all the latest news. And uh, I did notice on uh, Twitter from uh, a few of our followers that they've now received some of their merchandise. So uh, I'm hoping that uh, Chris Redmond's enjoying a nice cup of milky coffee, Dave, with his paddock pass podcast mug. If you're interested in getting any of the merchandise, just sign up to uh, the patreon account to get those paddock notes shows during the course of a grand prix and uh, you'll also get some merch through the course of the season as well but uh, it's going to be busy this weekend with uh, probably quite a bit of news like you were saying dave we'll probably have to be uh, keeping on our toes for patreon over the course of this weekend but always going to be exciting to see what happens in austria and to get the update on on how the rest of your journey is going to go to austria as well um, yeah, looking forward to it now. I mean, yeah, we've got some proper mountain passes to come. So um, uh, let's see. And I'm sure that <clears throat> now that I've got a, a proper photographer with me, the, the picture should actually be quite pretty. Dave, I think you're dreaming and thinking you're going to be riding with Cormac GP. He might actually <laughs> stay with you for about 600 metres, but then that's it. You know, you'll see him at the Red Bull ring. One of my favourite memories of uh, Adam um was uh, our first trip to the Red Bull Ring I think in 2016 we were staying with Cormac and uh Cormac was going to drive ahead of us and show us the route to the the hotel and within about 200 meters he was already off and disappeared off into the distance and uh the eye roll that uh, Adam did I've never seen something quite so dramatic it was yeah <laughs> obviously when someone's showing you the way to a remote rural location you know you take off at 180 on a dual carriageway a good tactic I wouldn't be surprised if Cormac does the same to you, Dave. So make sure your GPS is plugged in and keep your SIS app going. Yeah, I, I made I made the route, so um, uh, I can uh, uh, I know where we're going. So that's fine. Well, I was going to say, Dave, you shared the route with uh, Cormac on SIS app as well, so you were able to follow each other's progress. Now you can do that live with the app as well, but I don't think that it's advisable to see the speed that Cormac's <laughs> going to be riding at. But it is possible for that. Cormac can also get a notification if the worst happens for you as well, Dave, with Sizzap. So that's well worth checking out on sizzap.com. And if you do want to buy that, 
just use the promo code paddock to get a 10% discount on that as well so big thanks to Sazap for getting involved in the show for this week and also as usual to Rental Street and to Fly Racing for supporting the Paddock Pass podcast we'll be back over the course of the weekend with our Paddock Notes shows on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast so until next week when we'll review the Austrian Grand Prix we'll uh, leave you until uh, the Paddock Notes show over the course of the weekend it wasn't the Austrian Grand Prix Steve come on finish it on a high note uh, the, what is it? The Crypto Data Grand Prix van Österreich. Österreich. Excellent. Well Österreich. Done. Österreich. Österreich. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Yeah, it's a guilty conscience that you have there, Neil, and uh, that'll bring us actually on quite nicely to one of our big talking points for uh, this weekend's Grand Prix, because one man that probably hasn't slept too well, David Aleish Asparger, why do I always struggle with that name? Like, it's just ridiculous. You've said it so many times, you should, uh, you, yeah. you know, you should be I able know. to do it. I'm very aware of that.